So this morning, um, I'm planning on starting a, a series uh, probably on Galatians soon, uh, but we had just come through um, last fall, you remember we did that the 10-week series on discipleship, and then we went into Advent where we were celebrating the coming of Jesus, and then we had the three weeks on healing uh, with a couple of weeks ago, that healing prayer time together, uh, which was just so powerful, and uh, and I sort of felt like uh, there needed to be a response to that, to that whole sort of season that we've come through, just focusing on our relationship with God and us as disciples. And so this morning, uh, I want to talk about how we properly respond as Christians, specifically, what is worship? What, what have we just been doing and what do we do uh, when we respond to God? What is God's purpose for us in responding to him in worship? And, and in these last few weeks that we've been looking at healing and look at God's redeeming power and we've uh, had the Christmas season that we've just gone through. I just, I just don't want it to be lost on us how generous God has been to us as a church community that we've had. If you were able to stay for the prayer time, we had these just amazing testimonies of God's saving and redeeming power, not just in healing, but in mending relationships, in uh, uh, bringing people from depression into joy, um, from basically separation into community, uh, healing of bodies. We're saved out of all these different kinds of brokenness. And I, I don't want it lost on us how generous God is to us. And so, so we prayed with thanksgiving, that, that thankfulness that God is willing and able to save. No matter what we've done, no matter what paths we have walked down, no matter what our history is, what regrets we have, how we've sinned, God is able to make us his own. He's able to adopt us. He's able to make us disciples out of any circumstances in our life. It's just amazing. And so from that, I wanted to just respond to that and talk about our response, which is worship and what it looks like. What is God's good design for us? And Pastor Ron last week talked about God's good plan for our lives last week. And, and really that's what we're about as pastors. We're always teaching and admonishing and encouraging all of us to know God and know his good news for our life, his plan. I mean, that every Sunday it's the same thing. We're just, we're just trying to reveal and to expose and to show what God's good plan is for our life. And, and that's one way we could describe what we're about as Christians. As Christians, what we do and what we know is that lining our lives up with God's good design for us sets us up with the greatest opportunity for joy and meaning in our life. And the more we resist or avoid God's design for us, or the more we buy into counterfeit and false designs for our life, we make a purposeful life and real joy more and more difficult for ourselves. And so every week we're coming here saying, how do we line ourselves up with God's plan for our life? That's our greatest chance at joy. That's our greatest opportunity for purpose. That's the blessing that God pours out on us is that as we align ourselves with his plan for our life, we receive joy and he gets glory. And the more we resist that plan, the more difficult we make it. God has designed us as beings in his image and is transforming or tuning us as disciples to respond to him in a specific way. That's what I mean by lining ourselves up. And, and I've been all over the world in terms of this human design thing. I've been, uh, in my past career, I, was, I worked in a business that gave me opportunity to travel. I've been on just about every continent. Um, you know, so I've been uh, in East Germany. I've been in Thailand. I've been in India. I've been in Bangladesh. I've been in Egypt. I've been in South Africa. I've been uh, pretty much everywhere. And everywhere I go, 
I can tell you, in terms of God's design for us as people, everywhere I go, people do this. People love, and they celebrate, and they share. Everywhere around the world, you find people doing the same thing. It's like we're designed to love something, celebrate it, and share it. And that's what people do, is how we're designed. And it can be the most sophisticated, technologically advanced, first world nation. You find people loving things, celebrating them, and sharing them. Could be a new iPhone, could be a new computer, could be the latest TV show or the Hollywood movie. People love it, they celebrate it, and they want to spread the news about it to the people around them. You know, or you can be in the back, uh, you know, farm fields of Bangladesh amongst the poorest in the world, and they love whatever it is that they love, and they want to show you, they bring you out to show they've got you know, a 90-horsepower John Deere tractor, and they just love this tractor, and they will bring the whole community out to see this tractor, and they just love this tractor, and they want to celebrate and share how great this tractor is. It's what we do as a people. We love things, we celebrate and share them, and as they take a place in our life, as those things that we love and celebrate and share kind of take a place in our life, it becomes something that we've been talking about, which is worship. And we've seen people who have worshipped things that are the wrong things to worship, right? They love and they celebrate and share the most meaningless things. And they try to include other people in it with them, right? So it could be a sports team or it could even just be a sports person. I mean, the Patriots, really? Tom Brady? I mean, you want to celebrate and share Tom Brady? I mean, he's good, but why would you celebrate Tom Brady when you have Peyton Manning right there? (laughs) Why would you worship the lesser when the greater is present. It doesn't make any sense, right? You know? <laughs> I know there's a few Patriot fans. I walked into that one. But this is the example that we see. This is what we find in Romans 1, that as people, we tend to love and celebrate and share or evangelize the created rather than the creator, right? Why would you... Love and celebrate and share coal when diamonds are present? Why would you love and celebrate straw when there's gold? Why would you worship anything that is created when the Creator is present? Everyone worships something. Everybody loves and celebrates and orders their life around something. What is it that we should be ordering our life around? There's no point in worshiping anything inferior to God. Why would you do, why would you worship the inferior? Why worship nature if the creator of nature is here? The truth of God, the reality of our God, our creator God, our savior God, is we don't have to settle for worshiping coal or diamonds or straw or gold or any created thing because we have a creator to worship. And we don't have to speculate about who God is because God hasn't remained silent. He's spoken to us and showed himself to us, most importantly, by sending his own son to die for us and to set us free from worshiping all these wrong things. And so as Christians, we realize that this is what we're about every day of the week, is about setting our sights on the right thing to love and celebrate and share. And just quickly, if we can point out, or I could point out, that if we align ourselves to worship anything less than God, then we end up harming ourselves and harming others. If we put our trust in something ultimately untrustworthy, it will let us down. If we give our lives over to something created, it will not satisfy and it will often destroy. And we've seen people that worship money or worship fame or worship success or worship a person or worship an ideology. I mean, look at the turmoil 
of the politics south of the border of people worshipping ideologies. Ideologies that are polar opposite to each other, but they are so enraptured with their life purpose that their ideology must triumph. That they're tearing each other apart because they worship an ideology. And this is the damage that can be done if we worship the wrong thing in the wrong way. If you bank your life on your spouse or your job or your money or an ideology, those things cannot bear up under the weight of your worship. They will fail. They'll betray you. If we assign value and worth to the wrong things, we sabotage our ability to experience life as God intended. And so we come back to this point that lining ourselves up with God's good design sets us up as people made in His image with the greatest chance of joy and of purpose in our life. And the more we resist or the more we avoid God's design, then we make life difficult for ourselves. And so very practically then, what does that worship look like for us as Christians? As a people who love and celebrate God and want to share Him with other people around us because of His goodness, what does a worshipful Christian look like? That's what we're going to look at today. In Psalm 100, let me pray. Father God, as we open up Your Word, I ask that in this very short, simple psalm, just five verses, we would see some key elements of worship and we would understand what it is to come into your presence and to be worshipful, to be a people that align our lives behind putting value and cherishing and treasuring the God of the universe who created and saved us and how that lining that up brings us joy and brings you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 100, if you want to turn there in a Bible, there should be a Bible in front of you if you don't have one. If you don't own a Bible, you can take that one. And uh, if you want to tap there on your phone, that's fine too. Psalm 100. It's up there, actually. Actually, maybe I'll have you guys read this with me. Everybody just look up there, and we'll just all read it together. Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord and all the earth. Man, you guys are awesome. You're good readers. So we see there in Psalm 100 that God wants something to happen in us, not in Him. Okay, God doesn't need, and this is a good place to start in understanding our worship, that that God is not in need of our worship to somehow prop Him up. It's not like He's waiting from Monday to Saturday for us to get here and sing to Him and praise Him and give Him glory so that He can feel better about Himself because we've offered Him praise, right? Worship doesn't add anything to God. God is complete and perfect in and of Himself with or without our worship. So our worship doesn't add anything to God or you know cheer Him up. He's God. And so when we worship, understand that God's designed us for worship, yes, to glorify Him, but for us. We are the ones who benefit and who gain from worship. We're not adding to God. That's impossible to add to God. 
And music is powerful, but we can't categorize worship as only singing. And, and we're careful around here to keep that in mind, that worship is not just singing. If we limit worship to only be music, then we really do harm to the reality of, of what worship is and can be. Verse 1 says, make a joyful noise, and we really latch on to that as worship, and that's the best some of us can do. But, but verse 2, immediately right after, says, serve the Lord with gladness. Why as a church did we not latch on to serving as worship? but we latched on to music as worship instead, right? And we don't necessarily think of serving primarily as worship, but we'll get to that. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, in fact, Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory, or you could say love or celebration or worship of God. And so the expanse of worship includes the entirety of our lives. Everything that we do, whether we're eating or drinking or anything at all, is to worship God. We could talk about worship in our friendships. We could talk about worship at home, in our families. We could talk about worship at work. We could talk about worship in our finances, which is not like, woohoo, I got a lot of money. That's not the kind of worship that we're talking about in finances. But we could talk about worship in the financial blessing of blessing the God back in terms of the ministry and finances. You know, we could do a series, maybe I have to now, in all the different parts in our life that worship could and should show up. So we could ask ourselves as a church, what is our theology of worship? How does worship apply in every area of our life? But I'm not going to get into all that today in the time that I have, but, but maybe as part of a future series. But I want to talk specifically about worship as we think about it in the sphere or in the realm of the congregation. What then is worship when we are gathered together as the people of God, the gathering of the church, the body of Christ? What is the picture painted of worship in this psalm and throughout the Old and the New Testament of people coming and knowing and thanking and singing and serving or participating in worship? And are we worshiping in the way that God has planned for us to worship? And so the first thing is that we come, there's five actually active verbs in here, and I just mentioned them. There's five active verbs in the Psalm 100, and the first one is entering. It says, come into his presence, enter his gates. And so the psalmist here has in mind the Old Testament temple worship, right? The, the gathering of the people of Israel together at the temple in a place that is designed for God's worship for his people. It was first a tent in the wilderness in the center of the nation as they traveled from Egypt, and then it was rebuilt at Bethel, and then finally a temple was built in Jerusalem, and it was a place of meeting God. It was entering or coming into a place, a gathering, surrounded by courtyards for the tribes of Israel and, and a courtyard even for the Gentiles. And there were regular times and regular feasts where participation at the temple was more than expected. It was mandatory. The temple is where you went to celebrate and to repent. And it was the ordinary life of a worshiper to gather together. And so this first thing is to gather or to enter into worship. Psalm 42.4 says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. And so in the New Testament, the early church continued to meet at the temple. In Acts 2.46, it says they met every day in the temple courts. The church got together every day. Wouldn't that be awesome if you guys were here every day and we could do this? Yeah, I know I'm not going to get you to buy into that one. But that's what they did. When the church first formed in Acts. And when those people came in to become believers in Jerusalem, they were so excited and passionate to worship God, they met every single day in the temple courts. They wanted to be together so much. 
But as time went on, very quickly, Sunday, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose became the regular gathering time we see in Acts 20 and 1 Corinthians 16. But, but even that, apparently, some Christians started to fall away from gathering together. Because the writer of Hebrews, probably 30 or 40 years after this revival in Jerusalem, he's writing and he says in, in Hebrews 10.25, Don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you say the day drawing near. What, what am I saying here? The, the worship starts with showing up. You've you got to come. You have to enter into this place that's designed to worship God. How, how can we celebrate and share by ourselves? Right? The, the verb celebrate and share or worship requires others to participate to be meaningful. Have you ever celebrated a birthday alone? Right? That's a pretty sad celebration. Just you and a cupcake at the kitchen table. Right? But have you ever had a birthday where somebody like throws a surprise party and there's like 50 people there and it goes to like 2 in the morning? That's a celebration, right? And so there's no different here. When you're talking about worshiping, glorifying, celebrating God, it starts with showing up. It starts with coming and entering. That's celebration. And so worship in this part of our life begins with gathering together, with coming to church. God is up to something in the corporate gathering that is distinct from what He is up to in His time with you alone. God is doing something important in the corporate gathering for worship. And the idea that you can love God and not love life in the church, there is no category for that. For people to say, oh yeah, I love God, I love Jesus, but you know what, I really I don't really like Christians and I don't like getting going to church. It's like, well, you need to find another church then. Because there is no category for that in Old Testament or New Testament of a Christian who doesn't want to gather with other Christians to worship God. Worship begins, it starts with just showing up. And we want to fill this church and every other church here on Sunday because worship is coming together in the presence of God to celebrate and share. And so if you're not showing up, if if you're not in community, then is there really worship in your life the way God expects it to be? The second verb there is knowing. Verse 3 says, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, and the sheep of His pasture. And, and our attitude of worship comes from knowledge. It comes from a right understanding of who God is and who we are. And that is worship. And being transformed by our knowledge of Him is how we show love and celebrate and share Him. And, and so when the singing stops and we open up the Scripture as we have now, and then worship keeps going. The knowledge of God is part of our worship. It's worshipful to apply our mind to gaining knowledge of God and, and how we are to be His people and how He loves us. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, and by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That, that renewal or that transformation that comes from the knowledge of God It doesn't happen just by osmosis. It doesn't happen just intuitively. That transformation comes from us understanding who God is, who He's revealed Himself to be in His Scripture. It comes from knowledge. And conversely, sin and error and wandering from God in our life or false worship comes from ignorance. Sin can actually be defined as repressing or denying the knowledge of God. I just read this this week, actually. The Apostle Paul, in one of his clearest descriptions of sin, he states in Romans 1, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress truth. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What's the opposite of knowledge of God and true knowledge and worship and glory of God? The suppression of the knowledge of God and ignorance from turning from God's plan for your life and his revelation in his scripture. You want to do the opposite of worship, it's to not learn about God. Not learning about God is the opposite of worshiping him. The word of God, scripture, draws us into a realm of greater knowledge of the purity and holiness and wisdom and majesty of God. Knowing God is worshiping him. It's a form of our worship. And we get lots of wrong ideas about God. I was reading Tozer this week and he said, a lot of Christians want God to be just like them, except a little bigger so that he can be helpful. Right? And isn't that true? A lot of people want God to pretty much just be like us, but a little bit better so that he's helpful to us. He's like, you know, a rich uncle or something that we hope if we, you know, we can understand him, we can relate to him, and we can go to him for some business advice, and if we stay in his good books, we might inherit something in his will. Right? And people think that's God, and they're content with that knowledge of God. But when you read through the scriptures, there is no depiction of God that's anything like that at all. God is other, God is holy, God is righteous, God is pure, God is majestic, God is all-powerful. He's not just a rich uncle who's there to help you out when you're behind on your mortgage. And if you think that's God, you're not worshiping him. You have to know God in order to worship him. And knowing him and learning about him is worship. Thirdly, thankfulness or thanking is worship. Verse 4 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. You can't get very far in any section of scripture without this theme coming up. When, when we say that worship is love and celebration, a, a significant expression of that is giving thanks. I mean, that's what you do when you love and you celebrate something that's meaningful to you in your life, right? You give thanks for it. It's just the natural response. You thank the person who has meaning in, for you. Gratitude is the response that's built into us. And we see a picture of this described in the Old Testament temple worship. As everyone was gathered together, there was actually people assigned to the job at the temple. They had a job to do while they were gathered there. Their job was to praise and to thank God. In Second Chronicles 5.13, we see it. It says it was the duty of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. So they actually had a group of people that when they showed up, they said, you guys, your job is to make sure that you're heard. We're going to give you trumpets and you've got the loudest voices. So you make sure that you're heard and make sure people know that God is getting praised and thanks, okay? Because that's your job when we come together for worship. They actually assigned a duty to it. You can't worship with an ungrateful heart, right? In the New Testament, when we have a description of the church gathered together, Paul describes it in Colossians. He says in 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is worship. You can't really worship with an ungrateful heart. How can you celebrate what you're not thankful for? You know, you can't come in on a Sunday morning and say, Well, I can't really think of anything God's done for me lately. He's largely irrelevant in my life, but you know what? I'm going to worship him today. I can't do that. 
When you come in to worship, you are coming in with a thankful heart because God is more than relevant. He's your Savior. That He has carried you through this week, that in your weakness, He's been strong. And so you are overflowing with gratitude and thankfulness, and it's from that heart of thankfulness that worship comes. Gratitude is the attitude of worship. Fourthly, singing. Hey, we finally got there, singing. We knew we'd get there eventually. You know what? It says, make a joyful noise. Come into his presence with singing. And there's just no way to get around this. It doesn't matter how bad your voice is. You can be like me, tone deaf, can't hit a note, even if I had like a target on it. But we have to sing. We're meant to sing. It's inherently connected to worship. I mean, think about it. Where are the last bastions of song in our culture? We sing at birthday parties in order to celebrate the guest of honor. Many people sing on New Year's Eve, that old song that nobody knows the lyrics to, to celebrate the coming of the new year. We sing the national anthem to celebrate our country. And people sing at soccer matches to celebrate their team. And people sing along at concerts to celebrate their music idol. That's it. In our culture, we don't sing corporately together other than to celebrate birthdays, celebrate musicians, celebrate a soccer team. That's about it. And church, right? The only place people sing corporately together. I mean, what we do here in the morning is weird. We get together and sing. Nobody does that. But that comes out of a heart of worship. It's inherent to worship, to sing. And it's the way we show affection and the way we celebrate and the way we share together. If we were to go back to that example of Old Testament worship in Second Chronicles that I referred to, that verse that we started, it actually finishes off like this. If you finish off Second Chronicles 5.13, it says this, And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord... For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. The Holy Spirit came in the presence of that singing. We sing to worship. And in the New Testament, in Colossians again, we could be singing together again. And and then in Ephesians, he says the same thing. Ephesians 5.19, he says, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Songs are just the natural form of worship. Songs are what we do, like thanksgiving. It just sort of comes up out of us. And that's why we so closely associate worship with song. And it's right that we should. But we can see here in this psalm here and in other scripture that that worship is far more than just music and song. It's also entering and coming into his presence. It's also thanksgiving and gratitude. It's interesting when we think of worship, we, we quickly think of Psalm 101, making a joyful noise. But the final verb there is serving. Serve the Lord with gladness. Now in the Old Testament, the the service rendered to God was expressed in the form of the feasts and in the sacrifices at the temple in part. But more importantly, what the feasts and the sacrifices represented. And the feasts and the sacrifices represented the love and the mercy of God. And so they were a response to the character and the nature and the knowledge of God. And we see that in the prophet Micah. Micah 6, 7 says, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. 
What is the worship that God really wants? Yeah, the sacrifices and the feasts, they're a response to the knowledge of Him and who He is and His love and mercy. But the sacrifices were pointing to something better. He wants, in a humble way, not drawing attention to how awesome you are or how amazing you're doing or all the things that are on your plate, but just quietly being kind to people and doing justice where it's needed, serving and loving and showing mercy. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul makes the same connection. God requires no sacrifice. He has provided the sacrifice in His Son Jesus. Our service now becomes our act of worship. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12:1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we worship God, yes, by singing, by thanking, and by coming together and gathering, all those things, but we worship God by serving. As we talked about in our discipleship series, You've been given a unique set of life experiences. Only you have lived the life you have lived. Only you have the experiences and the disciplines and the talents and the skills that you have. And they've been given to you by God. And you have a unique spiritual gift that's been given to you in a measure according to your faith and according to how God would have you serve. You've been blessed with those talents and with that spiritual gift, and all these are meant to serve in the body of Christ, in the church. And that's your worship. Your worship is to serve. Remember that God is doing something in the gathering that He can't do with you alone. There are things that God is doing in your life that have to do with you and Him, and He's accomplishing those things by His Holy Spirit apart from anything else. But there are other things that he's doing in your life and he's doing those things in the congregation. He's doing those things in the gathering of the community of faith. God is doing something with you with the spiritual gifts and the service of others and your service towards others. You need others to serve. And hey, we have people that need your service. right? We have people who need your gifts and your talents. You have a spiritual gift It could be mercy, it could be administration, it could be teaching, it could be helping, it could be wisdom, it could be discernment. Whatever your gift, and that's maybe another whole other sermon, but whatever your gift and your abilities that God has given to you, He wants you to worship with them. And so if you come on a Sunday morning and you sing and then you go home and and you're not really using any of your gifts in service to your fellow Christians, then can you really say you're worshiping the way Psalm 100 says worship is? Are you really worshiping the way Paul says worship is? Are we worshiping in a biblical sense if we're not also serving with our gifts? Nothing in Scripture would support the idea that worship could be set apart from service. Everything in Scripture says that service to God and service to the church is part of our worship. And right now, we need people, right? Like I I could use like six or eight people. Whatever your spiritual gifts are, I don't know. You just come to me with whatever your gifts are and your talents. There are six to eight people we could use right away. You know, as more and more people come into this congregation, as we have more and more visitors and more and more people that we're welcoming into membership, there's just more things that need to be done and more people that need care. And so you can think about that and think, how am I using my gift and my talents as a spiritual act of worship in ministry to God? 
The picture of worship is gathering. It's entering into the community of the church. It's knowing God and being transformed by that knowledge. It's having an attitude of thankfulness. And it's joining in vocal corporate praise that testifies to who God is. And it's serving. Worship basically means full participation in the body of Christ. Worship that God expects is all in. All of you, full participation. Now you may say, Pastor Paul, you've just described traditional church. I mean, that's the way it's always been. And you're right. There's a reason that church looks like church for 2,000 years. It's because God designed church to look like church. And so if you just say, all you did is just describe what church always looks like, you've solved the puzzle. Church looks like church because church looks like what worshiping God is. It's people coming together, knowing God, singing thankful praise to him and serving one another. That's how God designed worship. And that's why church will always look a lot like church. So if you think as a Christian that you can avoid going to church and just sort of worship God on the golf course every Sunday, I have to tell you, you're doing it wrong. Actually, I'm not telling you. The Bible's telling you that you're doing it wrong. Right? If you think you can just show up at church without any praise or thankfulness or a song on your lips, well, that's not scriptural either. Or if you think you can ignore the Word of God or brush it off as, oh, that's just too intellectual and those, you know, egghead seminary guys, they study the Bible and I don't need to do that. You know, it's just me and God and we're fine. Well, the Bible would argue with you on that point too. And if you think an hour on Sunday is all that God asks of you of the body of Christ and that you don't have anything to offer or to serve and that God's not expecting your sacrifice of your service as worship, well, Scripture doesn't back you up there either. God has painted us a really clear picture of what church and worship is meant to look like. And surprise, it looks like church. Worship is what we do here. So you can go down through your own checklist. Are you coming? Are you knowing? Are you thanking? Are you singing? Are you serving? If you're following God's good design for your worship, then you have the best possible chance at joy and purpose in your life. And as you neglect these areas of worship, You kind of put yourself behind the eight ball to experience less joy and less purpose and less meaning and presence with God. As you resist those things, you may find that you have a a nagging, uncomfortable feeling that you're missing out on something. And lots of people around you will tell you that you are. What you're missing out on is worship. You're missing out on worshiping God. And so at Lakeside here as a church, we don't want to be lacking in any area of worship. We want our gathering together and our singing and our gratitude and thankfulness and our teaching and reading of the word and our serving to be fully expressed. We don't want God to be able to look at Lakeside and say, yeah, you're doing a good job in some areas, but you know, there's other areas that you're really missing out and I want the best for you. And so the encouragement from Psalm 100, it's just five verses. You can go home and read Psalm 100 like 20 times this week. And it's just those five things. And there's actually a six, there's a six verb in there. It's kind of hidden, kind of a passive verb. It says, we are, we are his people. We are the sheep of his flock. That's sort of the final thing that we are. That as we worship in this way, as we're in the presence of God and we're bringing our full worship, well-rounded worship in all these different areas, We get the joy and the purpose and the realization that we are his people. And that's what we want to be. We want to be God's people, worshiping him in the fullest expression of worship. Let's pray. Father God, this morning you make it abundantly clear that 
it's so easy for us to get trapped into just a reductionist view of, of anything about you. We think, oh yeah, worshipped, check that off, Sunday morning, did my hour. And then we just look in your word, just a simple psalm, five sentences. And we realize, wow, you have so much more planned for us than we can imagine. That worship is not just one thing. It's a hundred things. It's all of us. It's what we do in response to what you have done for us and who you are. So, Father God, I pray that as your people, I pray for those here that know you, that are your disciples, that we would want to express our worship to you in every area of our life and worship you fully in spirit and in truth. Now, Father, I know there's people here who just, you know, you're like a rich uncle to them. They've, you know, they've got you in their box and they don't really know you. And I just pray that there would be some, by your Holy Spirit, an awakening in them to understand who you are, our creator God, our savior, who loves us, who expects and wants so much more for us than we can imagine as we glorify and align our life around you. And Father, that that there are people that just don't know you at all. And I pray that they would see that as they worship and set their affection and they put their trust in something less than you, it's ultimately going to let them down. And so, Father, we want to be a people that put our trust in you, our faith in you, our hope in you, our worship in you, and get the maximum joy that you intended for us by worshiping you wholeheartedly with all of our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.